Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that attempts to answer that unanswerable question, why do people play this infuriating game? My name's Rod Murray and this is episode seven, but guest number six in this ongoing and I hope enjoyable series. If you've only just discovered us, feel free to check out the archive where we featured some fantastic guests already, including Bamboogle Dunes owner Richard Sattler and 1982 Australian Open winner Bob Shearer, alongside his wife, Cathy. Last month's guest, two-time Australian Open champion Peter Lonard, proved a real hit with listeners. And if you enjoy great golf stories told with a dash of humour by a player of world-class ability, then I highly recommend having a listen to that one. For those who've been enjoying the series, make sure to share it with any golfers you feel might also like it. We'd love to keep doing these interviews, and if enough of you are along for the ride, it makes that decision that much easier. We'll meet today's guest in just a moment, but first, a little bit of admin. If you've got some comments or questions or suggestions about the show, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can email us at golf at golfaustralia.com.au or find us on Twitter, as so many seem to do in this day and age. I'm at at Rod underscore Morrie, that's M-O-R-R-I, or the show has its own handle where you can send us a message, that's at Thing Golf, capital T for Thing, capital G for Golf. You'll find all the links to those various uh, outlets in the show notes below. Okay, let's get on with the show. And as we gear up for the summer of golf here in Australia, one event is towering over all others in terms of international interest and golfer scrutiny. The second week of December will see the President's Cup played for the 13th time and the third time at the iconic Royal Melbourne Composite Course. Now, most of the focus will be rightly on the 24 players taking centre stage. But for golfers with an interest in the game's playing fields, the course itself will be the 25th player. With such a bright spotlight shining on Dr Alistair McKenzie's masterpiece, it's only natural to wonder about those charged with the day-to-day responsibility of maintaining this revered layout. And on this episode, we're going to meet the man who does just that. Unlike many in his field, Richard Forsythe's introduction to golf came on his first day of work as an apprentice greenkeeper. But as you'd expect, his knowledge of an approach to the game, not to mention his understanding of the importance of a cathedral like Royal Melbourne, is now second to none. We grabbed Richard for one of the few spare hours he's had in the lead-up to the President's Cup to chat about all things golf and golf courses. It was a refreshing and interesting discussion. Just before I press play, a heartfelt thanks to Richard for taking the time to do the interview in what has been an extraordinarily busy period for him, and also to Royal Melbourne for allowing us a peek behind the curtain. Okay, on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Richard Forsyth. Let's start with the simple stuff first. Name, rank, and serial number for the listeners. So, um, Richard Forsyth, um, the director of courses now is the, the title at uh, Royal Melbourne, and I've uh, been here about 10 years, and uh, yeah, looking forward to an exciting uh, upcoming couple of months. Mm. Uh, we'll get to some other stuff shortly, but... It- just hearing you say that, Director of Courses now, everything about this industry has changed in the last 20 years, is it, including just the language? Yeah, that's right. I, I think, um, you know, from when I started, it was very much about um, the basics of, of maintaining courses. But now, of course, you know, we've got, I guess, the science has developed and the, and the grasses and everything that goes with that, but also the, uh, you know, the, the number of people and the budgets and, and, and it's a real management uh, role these days. And, you know, we've got 40-odd staff and uh, we're managing a... 
you know, five and a half million dollar uh, budget. So, uh, you know, and, and probably never really um, taught that in, in, in from an mm-hmm. education sense. It's been something that you just sort of develop as you go along. As you go along. We'll come back to some of all that, that stuff in a minute. The podcast is called The Thing About Golf. What's The Thing About Golf for Richard Forsyth? Uh, it's been my career, I, I suppose. Uh, you know, I, I, it wasn't... I wasn't attracted to the to the career through um, playing the game mm-hmm. or being uh, necessarily interested in golf as as a young person. Um, no one in really my family was a keen golfer. What did you I, think of golf as you were growing up? What sort of image did the game have? Uh, oh, look, I can't really. I, I don't really um, sort of recall being being focused or interested in it, but it w- my attraction was I came from a farming uh, background, or my father was a dairy farmer, uh, and the connection was about you know horticulture and, and machinery and outdoors, and that that was the uh, the attraction for me. So it wasn't so much about uh, the game, and then sort of I guess really when I. My first day as a, a, a in the job at seventeen and a half years old was the first time I set foot on a golf course. Really, mm-hmm. so it was quite a uh, probably an unusual way of, of stepping into the role. It's clearly been a hell of a journey since then, and I'm looking forward to getting some background on it. What about the grass and the machinery and the industry did appeal to you? Because, like everything, all industries are different things to different people who are in them, aren't they? Mm. What was it for you? We know I, I finished um, high, high school and uh, I was off to, to university as uh, as I was probably uh, advised I should do, but didn't really uh, sort of I had enough of the the, the um, school side of things and I wanted to get out and and, and you know, get it get into it. Were you one of those outdoors people where being in a classroom didn't really appeal, being outside kind of – a lot of sport people say that, don't well, they? Well, no, I didn't mind school. I mean, I was, I was, uh, was okay, but I thought I, after year 12 I'd sort of had enough of it. So I, I was at home working the summer holidays on the farm, uh, as we did, um, and uh, just sort of started looking around for, you know, what, what are my options? And the first job I applied for was the one I got, so Riversdale Golf Club um, – apprenticeship and, and sort of started from there and, uh, and got into it but you know the attraction c- certainly was outdoors uh, working with machinery and and, um, uh, and growing things uh, w- was a real interest and it sort of you know uh, I've loved it ever since. More from there. Uh, just to back up a bit, where did you grow up? You mentioned that your first job was there at Riversdale, were you a suburban Melbourne boy or were you from outside of? Well our, our dairy farm was in Scoresby of all places so not too many dairy farms in Scoresby these days. <laughs> We just looked at the aerials of the golf course, didn't we, and noted how much the world has changed since closed right in. But so I I grew up there as probably one of the few kids from a farm going to the school in even in those days. But uh, so we we were had the benefit of being relatively close to to Melbourne, but uh, still still the farm life was was pretty good. Mm. So so you come to Riversdale Golf Club, you start an apprenticeship there. you said you'd not really had any interaction with golf previously. What were your initial thoughts and, and what was the, the sort of structure and the – golf clubs are a very different place, aren't they, to the outside world quite often. What was your, your first interaction, your first impressions of the game? Uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I felt at home straight away really and, and you know, it was, um, again, working with machinery and, and – and, um, and being outdoors was was really appealing, um, 
and the surroundings were, were, were great. I mean, how could you not uh, enjoy uh, the surroundings? And so, and the people, I think, as well, you know, you soon, you know, the, there's the real ownership from members about their, their club and their and the atmosphere around there was really quite welcoming. And, um, you know, I just, just, just felt very comfortable right from day one. But Is that true of staff too? It feels to me like... Uh, greenkeeping, agronomy, core superintendents. Not true for everybody, but for many it's almost a calling as opposed to a job. Yeah, I think to be successful at it, you have to be passionate about it and, you know, you take ownership of the piece of land. If you don't, then, you know, you're not going to – you're probably not going to be successful. So you sort of live and breathe it uh, and you have to do that and, 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 you know, we all get – we probably get too um, – so you know if, if there's this criticism or things and then we, we you sort of take it uh, take it to heart a bit but uh yeah you, you have to be really dedicated to it and especially at at the level of the the higher level clubs because the expectation is really high so you know you can't i can't pr- produce um you know firm bouncy conditions without you know being committed to that you can't just sort of Walk out on a Friday night and go home and expect it's going to be okay. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to live it. You've got to be back here, you know, in the afternoons and checking. And certainly, same for your staff. You know that they're they're dedicated and and, and uh, committed to it as well. So you know you, you need more than just one person to, to especially um, here, but uh, with with so many uh, so much so many uh, yeah so much area to keep it on. So um, yeah, you have to be committed to it and, and passionate about it to uh, to really uh, be good at it. Yeah, like most golfers, Richard, I expected to walk in and see the firm and fast button on the wall. Don't you just press that when you want it firm and fast, then you turn it off when you. Well, when you we often have these discussions <laughs> because you know um, ha- how firm is too firm, and, and you know it's not a dial setting, and you know if you're going. With the intention to have firmness in your greens, you can't just sort of, um, you know, soften it up for the for the women on on, on Wednesday, <laughs> and firm it up for the, for, the, for the club championships on Saturday. So, if you're if you've got that goal in mind to f- for firmness, then there will be times it does get over firm because you, you just can't dial that in to, to a setting. So, um, yeah, we we have that conversation all the all the time about uh, about that, but you know. It's been something that I've been always try to do is see the ball bounce forward when it lands, and so you know, for me, that, why? why, why? Oh, I just, I, I don't know. I've been, uh, I suppose, I've been. Uh, it's been uh, trained into me, and certainly, um, uh, one one player uh, in particular at um, at Metropolitan Golf Club always drummed it into me that. You know, um, you're going to reward the the player that hits the really good shot. You're going to reward him if if you've got firmness against someone who can just fire it at the pin and, and stop it from anywhere. So if you've hit it to the right position on the fairway, or you know you're coming in from the right angle, um, you, you're going to reward the guy who's thought about it and um, is able to execute that perfectly. Uh, versus someone who's coming at it from the wrong angle and um, and hasn't really thought it through. So um, I took that on board always, and you know he he was a you know, club champion at Metropolitan and sort of really drummed that into me. And 
and you know and i think you know royal melbourne has always had that or you know most of the time it has had that philosophy anyway but so coming here that's uh, what we set out to do uh, right from the word go is to make sure that the Greens, uh, that's how, how they behaved and how they reacted. And uh, I think, you know, as the as people hit the ball further, as players hit the ball further, not not all the members necessarily, but as the good players hit the ball further, to see some of that strategy from, from you know, McKenzie's design and Morecambe's construction, to see some of that... Um, you know, that some of that strategy in the golf course still, you've got to have firmness. Uh, otherwise, you know, you can just fire it from anywhere. But so, so it's a really important thing for me and we work hard on that. Uh, and you can't just do that by, you know, turning the sprinklers on and fertilising. You know, you've got, to, you've got to keep everything sort of lean and, you know, use the right sand and, you know, um, yeah, so a lot of things come into that mix. Yeah. We'll come back to some – I've got a million questions just based on what you said there. We'll come back to some of that. What I did mean to ask you was just chronologically, how did you end up here? You started at Riversdale Golf Club at 17 and a half. You now would have one of, I would imagine, the most prestigious and sought-after positions in the world of golf course superintendentry, if I can invent a word, mm-hmm. here at Royal Melbourne. What was the journey in between? What were the steps for Richard Forsyth to end up here? Yeah, uh, well, you know t- – Loved my time at, at Riversdale. Worked, did my apprenticeship there, and um, then did another year at um, Burnley Horticultural College. Uh, after that, just part time while I was working, um, I saw a, an assistant superintendent's position advertised at Yarrawonga um, when the uh, Murray course was about to be built up there. To, to about three hours from Melbourne for those not from the area, on the border between New South Wales, and so forty-five hole. To make it a forty-five hole development, I thought, this, "Gee, this would be a great opportunity to so there was take a, the next." Step. So there was a construction element to that as That's well. Right. We're going to build holes, yes. and so there'd be exactly. that part of the process exactly. too. Yeah. Yes. So uh, it was a um, Thompson Woolridge um, design at the time. So yeah, it was lucky enough to get that uh, role, and did about three and a half years there during the construction of, of the the Murray course, which was really good fun. We did a lot of that. Um, ourselves as the staff did a lot of the work so uh, learned a lot of things there and, and worked a bit with uh, Mike Wolveridge and, and had a had a great couple of days um, walking through the red gum trees there and the land with a um, bunch of stakes over my shoulder and a, and a sledgehammer <laughs> and, and Michael walking along going well this is the centre of the fairway here lad we'll put the, put, put the peg in there and this will be the green so there wasn't a lot of um, you know, the, the, using the, the aerial imagery or GPSing or anything like that, it was very much walk down the hole and drive the stake in. Anyway, it was it was, it was great fun. So, spent three and a half years there, and then um, there was a new development uh, at Swan Hill at uh, Murray Downs Golf and Country Club um, being developed, and uh, the 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 directors of the the club um, came through Yarrawonga and I showed them around when I was uh, when they were on tour along some of the other clubs looking at uh, how they might go about developing their new facility and uh, anyway I've got made a connection there and and um, and, and got the job there as my first superintendent's job at uh, at uh, Swan Hill and was involved in the construction sort of right from the very early days there through to opening and um, you know that was very rewarding as well and uh, from there, the next job I applied for was Metropolitan. Um, came up 
uh, as an opportunity there in 94 and uh, uh, lucky enough to get that and started there and did 15 years there and then um, then the opportunity arose here and, and I, I you know, really didn't apply for a job in that 15 years uh, at Metropolitan. I was very happy there, uh, lived on the golf course, um, raised, raised family there and um, but yeah, this was too good an opportunity not to uh, not to have a go at, and was lucky enough to get the the opportunity here, and been here about ten years now. So, Indeed. just to back up the differences between okay, first things first, what do you learn from being on hand for the construction of a golf course that I imagine you still some of that knowledge you would use to this day? Because you see it with the covers off, don't you? You yeah. understand what goes into it. There must be some things I imagine that once the covers are on, knowing what's underneath there is of some help. Yeah, well, you know, there's, there's all different styles of construction, and um, and in that instance, we built um, not exactly a USGA type profile, but certainly had a gravel layer, drainage, and then then a, and a set specific layer of sand on top of that, um, and that was a sort of a construction method that was designed to, to follow and it's been used worldwide for many years of course here it's just pushed up out of the local sand in the in the vicinity of the green so it's quite a different scenario but um, you know we're doing a construction of the Sandringham uh, public course uh, reconstruction there at the moment and we're using the same philosophy of using the sand from the site to build the greens with no real drainage layers or anything like that. Um, and that's a bit of a key to, and it's a bit of a characteristic of the sand belt courses, although some of them, including Metropolitan, had rebuilt greens you know, 15 or 20 years ago and went to that sort of drainage profile, which really changed the characteristics of how the greens react and behave. So, yeah, there's a little bit to know about how, how they are constructed and, and how you go about that and what method you might choose to, to use when you are constructing a new new green. So it does affect the characteristics uh, going forward from there. So Because we golfers don't understand, do we, necessarily, or probably don't think about. A golf course is a living, breathing thing. There are no on and off switches. And there's no immediate – you can water now and that doesn't have an immediate result necessarily right now and that result will change over time. And that's is, – is being a course superintendent more of an art than a science? Has that balance changed over time? No, it's definitely still there. The, the, the art and, and science – I mean, you need to know the science to – to perform the art, I suppose, or it helps you perform the art. But it's it's. I still find the way we do things here is very much um, still touch and feel, and, and have a have a you know we've got all these aids now that sort of we can use, and you can almost sit at your desk and you know see your moisture change, you know, all, all, and and have all this data at hand. But for me, it's about getting out and touching and feeling it so um, there's definitely the art element and if you if you're chasing a firm surface it's really you know it's almost like there's some elements of cricket wicket preparation mm-hmm. you know where you're trying to get that right moisture content to get the right bounce and and, and that sort of thing so um, to, to control that as I said before you know you've got to you've got to be out there and especially in hot weather because you know if you're running a very dry system and you've got you know 35 plus day it doesn't take many mm. uh, many hours of 
you know, drier conditions to, to turn the turf over and then you don't recover it straight away. So. Because grass is hardy, isn't it? But you can't stress it endlessly and expect no. it to survive. And especially the grasses that we use on greens and, you know, we're and then the story of the grass here is quite, you know, quite a story in itself, um, how it was sort of redeveloped from the original grasses. So it doesn't have any of this breeding for, you know, drought tolerance, disease tolerance and all those sort of things. So it's a little bit more, um, you've got to understand it a little bit more than you do perhaps some of the newer modern uh, creeping bent grasses that, are, that have had a lot of uh, development and breeding put into them to, to make them more resilient at that very low cutting height that we you know we're down at that sort of two millwick cutting that's the life out of it all the time and rolling it and then drying it out so you abuse it a lot um, so it's hardy to a point but um, you know you, you get it wrong and it'll soon tell you uh, uh, put up a white flag and say I've had enough and um, all of a sudden you've got um, sick green so uh yes it's it's you know you've got to uh you've got to work with with all those parameters but uh yeah it's it's and you know then the fairway grasses the the warm season grasses that we use here cooch grasses are a a lot more resilient in the hot weather but um and they're less stressed by the by being golf they're not cut as short and as often as there's not the rolling and no they they don't do the hard work yeah and and so the greens you know we're you know, of all sports, all people prepare surfaces in, in sport or natural turf surfaces. You know, golf is one of those things where you're judged by that little white ball rolling across the surface. And so there's no room for, for imperfection or blemishes because of the way that the game's played and, and what, what you're judged on. So uh, it's different to kicking a football around on a, on, a, on a ground or horse racing or you know, whatever. You're judged on that, that roll. I'd not thought of it that way, but the interaction between the equipment and the field is unique in golf, isn't it? In no other sport, as you say, in cricket, the ball bounces over the outfield, or in these days, generally flies over the outfield till it clears the fence. It doesn't exist anywhere else, does it? Where the the, the surface itself, the living, breathing surface of of golf, has such an impact on how it's played. Well, lawn bowls a little bit, but you know you've got a little bit more tolerance because of the the size of the the ball and the and the way it rolls. But it, it's got no golf, bounce either. No, no, that's right. So. Um, yeah, that's the, the premium's premium is on. The, the, that ball's in um, contact with the surface all the way across, and you know, you, in a tournament situation, you know, you get those low camera angles and the high definition. Uh, you can see exactly what's going on, so that puts a lot of uh, you know expectation on, on your surface preparation as well. Just to whip off on a tangent, given that. Why haven't we gone to artificial green surfaces, which surely would be much easier to prepare exactly as you would want at any given time? They can just make it in a factory to whatever you you specify. Why haven't we gone to that? I know that as a golfer, I wouldn't like it and probably wouldn't put up with it. Most wouldn't. What is that connection, do you think? Yeah, look, it's interesting, and, and uh, I guess as time goes on, and there's more, you know, uh, focus on you know sustainability and water, and you know. The environment and things, you know, it may gather some, and they'll develop these things more to get them to behave and react. But I don't think anyone's really come up with a, the surface that will behave and react like a, a natural turf surface. Or look like, perhaps more important. No, and, you know, I suppose it's, you know, you see it in tennis, you know, there's not too many um, lawn tennis surfaces used at sort of professional level anymore. I mean, there's obviously the main one we know but uh you know so and and then cricket you know you see the the local 
cricket played on on a synthetic surface but you know the the test cricket because mm. the surface surface is a big part of the game mm-hmm. how it how it reacts and you know it breaks up over in in a cricket situation over time and the impact that has on 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 a, on a test match and so on so golf yeah I, it really just hasn't i just don't think they've really developed that um that reaction to the ball mm. uh, the way it does on a natural turf surface yet to, for it to really gain any momentum. I mean, they're out there yeah, and, so, and, yeah. and they do exist, but I, they haven't been really taken up no. at, at a high level. But Let's just go back to Metro for a minute. It's known internationally as one of the best conditioned and presented golf courses on a day-to-day basis in the world. What's it like to be in charge of that and be responsible for that? I imagine it's fantastic when you hear everybody rave about it. And nerve wracking the rest of the time when the pressure's on to keep it that way. Yeah, it's sort of uh, it, it's gained that reputation. Um, Is that it, your fault? Was that under your watch that it gained no, the reputation? No, <laughs> no, I think it uh, prior to, to me, but I, it was certainly one of the um, first clubs in Melbourne to adopt the pure cooch um, fairway surface. So um, probably going back to the early 80s when they you know the fairways used to be just a mix of all sorts of grasses and then metropolitan was one of the first and they they uh, engaged peter mcmore from sydney who was is a well probably a best known turf expert in australia and uh he was a very really real innovator at the time but he he was able to uh develop this system of spraying out all the all the competition grasses and develop a pure cooch surface and then from there he also selected a a grass known as wintergreen cooch and um, he recommended to to metropolitan to improve their natural cooch grass by by over planting with this wintergreen which is very fine leaf and and very high uh, surface quality so you know i think they were early adopters of that and, and others followed, you know, Kingston Heath and Huntingdale and, and followed closely behind. But I think Metropolitan was a leader um, at that time in terms of having pure uh, cooch surfaces and then improved cooch grass as well. So from there, it sort of gained a reputation, I think, and, you know, no one had ever seen fairways that's so immaculate. And um, I'm not sure necessarily whether that's... You know where we need to go with fairways, but anyhow, it's, it's set this standard for, for fairway surfaces, and so you know we just continued on with that in in, in my time there. Um, greens, we played around a lot a lot with greens and, and rebuilt all the greens there, and so to again using sort of a, some of the newer improved creeping bents. So um, it was an early, I think Metropolitan was an earlier adopter of um, you know changing grasses and, and modernising their their turf systems, and from there that sort of probably led to to it being known uh, for its, uh, its high level maintenance. But it certainly puts pressure on, and I, I think I, I was very proud of. What the staff and, and we were able to achieve uh, for the 2001 match play, Accenture match play that was held there. And that, that was a really, it just had a, a real element. We had the, the roughs dried off, were nice and brown, mm-hmm. and the fairways stood out, and, and, and it was a very, um, just it all came together nicely. For, it was a January tournament, um, and it presented really well. And sort of from there, it sort of continued to sort of um, 
uh, hold that reputation. So You found the look magnificent button for that tournament. <laughs> Press the button, look magnificent, yeah. and there it was. Yeah, Fantastic. that's right. Fair, yeah, it's, it doesn't happen all that often. <laughs> so, <laughs> if only take it, it so, while you can get it. Yeah, exactly. If only it were so easy. Of course, you've ended up here, Richard, as the in charge of two of the most revered layouts in the world. And, of course, the composite course here at Royal Melbourne always appears in the lists of the top five or ten best golf courses in the world. Does that play a part in day-to-day work? Are you aware constantly that, you, that you're a part of something, not just in Melbourne, not just among the members? But I, I feel like all golfers in Australia feel a little – and I think this is true of Augusta too – we all feel a little bit of an ownership of Royal Melbourne hmm. because it's such an important part of the Australian, Australian golf's history. Mm. Yeah, I, I think even before I, I worked here, you know, um, did, did quite a few trips overseas looking at golf courses and things. And I think we'd always, uh, groups of superintendents we, we went with, we, we'd always use, or I certainly would always use Royal Melbourne as, as a bit of a measuring stick, you know. So you go along to, to Shinnecock Hills or, you know, St Andrews or, you know, how does it stack up against Royal Melbourne? Because that's what we knew really as our, our, our best um, golf course. So I always used that as the measuring stick. And you, you, you went around the world looking at the great golf courses and, and I always felt, even before I worked here, that um, Royal Melbourne stood up pretty well against most of those um, courses that had um, were held in high regard. So, um, But do I – am I aware of that? Oh, look, I <laughs> – Yes, I suppose, but you don't think about it uh, too often. Uh, we can't afford to, Richard. No, that's right. So, uh, you know, I like to uh, take time in the evening to sort of um, just go for a walk around the golf course and, and, and have a bit of a, a chance to smell the roses a little bit. So, you know, you do stand at different angles and different um, views of the golf course and, and you think, gee, this is a special place. <laughs> but when you're out there doing the work, sometimes you could get caught up with, well, it's just another green and another bunker and another fairway. So, But you do you do admire some of the views and when the sun's down low in the, in, in the evenings and things, it's, it's a fantastic time to, to look at the golf course. So, yes, certainly aware of the responsibility and, 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 and the regard the course is held in and certainly you bring people here that know a little bit about golf architecture and, and design and have never seen the place before and they just sort of they're, they're in awe of the place and sort of does remind you how good it is but um, you know if you keep going around in your, in your job and just looking at that that, that uh, thin patch of turf or that, that scarring there <laughs> you, know, you get caught up in the negatives um, you, you know you don't take time to, to appreciate it but no, I'm certainly very aware of, of where it's held and the regard it's held in and you, when you and when you do travel internationally you know people talk about Royal Melbourne and want to know about it and so um, you, you do do appreciate that uh, it is held in high regard yeah is it a spiritual place Richard this is I reckon there's probably two or three places in the world where I could happily watch 15 markers play golf, and this is one of them. Mm. There's something about this place, I think, if you love golf, if you really love golf and what it can be, Mm. this is a bit special. You you can go to other terrific golf courses, great golf courses, architecturally phenomenal golf courses. Maybe that's just something we attach to it, I don't know, but this place has always felt special to me. No, definitely. There's a there's a there's a feeling, um, you know, when you drive into the driveway, um, you know, come through the front gates. That there's definitely a feeling about about uh, Royal Melbourne, and you know, it's the history and the tradition and what's happened 
here and we were talking about you know people that remember remember shots and things that happened and, and those sort of things so there's so many examples of, of, of things that have happened in tournaments over the years and, and, and I'm not the best person to recall them but we'll uh, get, we'll get but, clates to fill that yeah that's right he, he, he'll very every one at, of them yeah he's very good at it. Uh, <laughs> and so you know I think that that's what gives it uh, that that sort of sense of um, uh, being somewhere special and uh, uh, you know and the years and, and the Mackenzie and the connection and so there's all those things and then then of course it's the land and how it looks and the, and the scale of the place and all those things that, that go with it so yes it's, it's definitely got that about it. Scale's something I feel like maybe it's what Royal Melbourne does best there's a scale to the place isn't there that you don't feel those beautiful big sweeping dog legs Augusta looks somewhat similar on television that that feel but scale is a don't know if underrated the right word. Maybe overlooked, with with what makes places special to play golf. At. Yeah, I, I think that's that's you know if someone said to me you know what 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 makes Royal Melbourne you know uh, the course that it is uh, you know there's a few things to that but definitely the scale and if you and when it hit home to me is you know, there was some we were doing some photography at a, at a tournament time and had the opportunity to go up in a helicopter and, and sort of get up above the course and look down on it and, and you know there's two things that it's everything's um to scale um but the scale is big yes that's right so you've got these you know big greens big bunker areas wide fairways uh and, and the, but but everything's to scale within that so it just really fits together well and then you know you get up over a, a golf course nearby and look down on it it looks like a scaled down version of Royal Melbourne so I think the scale thing is really important to how the place plays and feels um, and of course it's the the land and the contouring mm. and the the, the sand uh, the vegetation and all those things come into it as well but yeah the, the size and the scale and how that all works together is very important, I think. A grandeur. Helicopter bird's eye view of your own golf course is something I suspect not many course supers have the benefit of ever seeing. What was that like as an experience? It must have been different. No, no, it's great. I've done it a few times and just, I think, with um, with tournaments and things, you, you sort of get that opportunity. And in the old days when they used to do the um, the fly-down imagery of, uh, of each hole with, with the, uh, the the camera strapped on the front of the helicopter, I think you know, things of technology has moved on a little bit. <laughs> That's right, air, but tiny uh, little helicopters so, these days. So, that, so often uh, the Channel 7 uh, people were, um, were good enough to say, or. Oh, to the superintendent at the time, you know, would you like to go up and have a look and, and things? So that, that was that was a good thing to do, and it, it does give you a different perspective uh, for sure. So, yeah. So talk about your relationship with golf. We'll come back to the course and the upcoming Presidents Cup. We haven't even got to that yet. But your own relationship with golf—you'd had virtually nothing to do with the game when you started. Did you take up golf when you were at Riversdale? Did you take an interest? What's what's your relationship with golf now, and how's that developed over the years? And do you need to be a golfer? to be in charge of a place like Royal Melbourne and do it properly? Yeah, that, this is an interesting question. Anyone who knows me, always played golf with me. Uh, <laughs> this will bring a smile to their face. But uh, I remember um, um, Paul Rack, the, the the general manager here at Royal Melbourne. Legendary general when, manager, I think. Mm, that's right. When, when I was employed and we were talking about – someone was asking me about, about golf and um, – 
he just sat back in his chair and said, well, Richard, we didn't employ you for your golfing ability. And it's probably just as well that we didn't, or Royal Melbourne didn't employ me for my golfing ability. Uh, and I think it's a bit of source of some embarrassment to me, the standard of my golf. But uh, Welcome to the club, Richard. <laughs> so, uh, and I don't work at it uh, too much because, uh, you know, I'm committed to doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you have a a day off or time off it's probably not the first thing you, you're going to pick up and do but I, I do enjoy a, a game and I, I've probably been fortunate to play a lot of the great golf courses of the world uh, very poorly but uh, <laughs> had had the the privilege to do that and uh, probably not be able to appreciate them as well as uh, someone who can play well but uh, look I, I love that uh, I love to do it but it just embarrassingly I can't do it very well and you know been an 18 marker is about uh, as good as I've, I've been but you know I don't work at it to be fair mm. and um, uh, but still like to get out and, and enjoy it in, in, in the right circumstances and uh, um, yeah I'm not sure I'm ever going to be a great uh, exponent of it at this stage of my, my life but uh, nothing wrong with being in the majority Richard if you, if you had to be good at it there'd be about a thousand people in the world at play and that'd be it and that right. wouldn't be exactly. particularly good for the game but what about your relationship with the game would you like to be better has it frustrated you over the years have you always enjoyed it how did you come to start playing what some people as you know are obsessed with golf mm. obsessed with getting better and scoring and mm. uh, some people like me are obsessed with the course and in fact I walked a course yesterday because, to be honest with you, I find that more enjoyable a lot mm. of the time than actually playing golf because, mm. like you, I'm not particularly good at it. Mm. Um, what's your relationship like in that way? And do you understand those people who get obsessed by it? You, you must meet hundreds of them here every day. <laughs> I think. They come from all over the world to enjoy this. Uh, yes, I know, it's the beauty of the game, isn't it? I mean, it does, it's, it does really can draw you in and get you um, um, so obsessed with it. But, uh, no, I don't think it's ever obsessed me to, to be to be better at it it's frustrated me that I, I couldn't be better and I but I as I said I, I don't think I've really committed myself to try and get to a high level of, of, of playing I've just been happy to be able to play and appreciate it and, and understand from a golfer's perspective what we're doing and how that connects but uh, um, you know I, I certainly um, value and enjoy watching really good players play on the golf course that we prepare for them so uh, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that so something like a professional tournament when you've got the best players playing on on, on the course that you prepare that's a source of enjoyment for me to watch a highly skilled player play play on the on the course that we prepare so I, I certainly get a lot more enjoyment out of that than me trying to <laughs> thinning another five yeah, yeah, exactly. third fairway exactly. yes exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, understood well let's come to that of course there's been many tournaments here how many professional events have you been the core super for here I know we've had a couple of women's opens we've that's right a couple of president's cups uh, how many have you been here for yeah. so we, we uh, when, when I started here in 2009 we did a, um, a resurfacing uh, pretty much of the both courses were so replanted fairways um, re- resurfaced greens tees new irrigation system so we did that and then 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 um with with the upcoming um 2011 president's cup in mind um so we so we did that work and then that led into the uh 2011 president's cup then we did the 2012 women's australian open and then the 2013 um, 
World Cup of Golf and Australian Masters back to back over a fortnight period. So that was that was an interesting. Um, What's that like as a course super? Two tournaments back to back. Now that yeah. must change the way you go about things because tournaments are notoriously stressful on the golf course. That's right. So you've you've really got to um, try and um, you know time your run, and you can't sort of uh, uh, have your have have necessarily the driest and firmest conditions over two week periods quite quite uh, tricky and you get a lot more weather variables uh, with two week uh, preparation so yeah it was a different uh, dynamic and probably I think we got through it okay but um, yeah it's a it's mm. uh, probably not the ideal scenario. 14 sleepless nights as opposed That's to five right. that you normally get. Yeah. Well, <laughs> look, the sleepless nights often are, are leading up to because, um, you know, I always say it's, you know, if, if, if the if the painter paints the wrong colour in, in the room, he can stay up all night and repaint it uh, the right colour. But if you get the turf wrong and it dies, then you can't fix that for three months. So it's just sort of a, a three-month... It brings it home, doesn't it? It does. The reality yeah. of for exactly. and for an event like a Presidents Cup, the World Cup that you mentioned, some of the events that you have here, it's international scrutiny, isn't it? Mm. Mm-hmm. On television screens that are showing things in much more detail, shot mm. with cameras that pick up a lot more. De- it's not getting easier, is it? No, and and you know the expectation from the players, mm. and um, you know they they play on mm. fantastic conditions year round, week out. So. Um, there's a high level of expectation there and, and you know, again, the responsibility of, of sort of trying to manage that and you know, deal with the, uh, the the infrastructure build and things that happen happen leading up to as well as focus on what you're trying to do with your turf as well. So, Of course, you've got a bunch of traffic out here on the course for the next couple of months bringing in truckloads of steel and all sorts of things to do. How does that impact the preparations? Obviously, you've got to keep them away from the playing areas. I imagine there's some logistics involved in that. No, it's 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 definitely a, a big factor for something like a President's Cup where mm-hmm. there's so much um, you know, infrastructure to come in. Um, so I think we've, we've got something like 8,000 8, grandstand seats wow. um, uh, for this event and um, you know, corporate hospitality mm-hmm. is... I think about thirty percent bigger than it was last time, and it was quite a big build last time. So um, we've got some new, um, some additional facilities, and some of the facilities are much larger than they were last time. So a lot more scaffolding and, and marquees and things to come in, uh, grandstands, um, and then you know there, I think we had about twenty five thousand spectators per day. Uh, in 2011, it's going to be more like 35,000 um, in, in this um, 2019 event. So, um, you know, that getting people around and, you know, that's where the scale of the place comes mm-hmm. comes to the fore because you've got room between the, the vegetation and, and the fairway edges to, to um, allow that sort of number of people around and things. So... Um, but we, we sort of dedicate one or two staff pretty much right from now through, uh, you know, looking after that, working with the, the, the organisers to, to um, minimise the, the impact on the golf course to get all that built mm. infrastructure, infrastructure done. Because, so. of course, as the manager of this section of the course, uh, something like a President's Cup is multifaceted. There's managers from every department, I imagine, regularly in meetings of Royal Melbourne with the PGA Tour and others. Mm. All of that cuts into your time to oversee and ensure that the golf course, when the TV cameras get turned on, is in the condition that you want it. So mm. there's a real juggling act, I imagine, there 
to be managed when you're in your position particularly yeah absolutely there's, there's a lot of lot of facets to it as well so you know you sort of um you know you get involved in now how do we get water to the to the hospitality areas mm-hmm. and you know electricity and, and then you've got to they've got to peg down all these um, structures and things so you've got to OHS, you can't have people tripping over, and <laughs> no, all that. But you've got to, you know, you've got to get power and generators, and you know, you've got to put stakes in the ground so you've got to mark out all your irrigation and underground services because we don't want them driving, you know, pegs through through that. A little signage that goes around the tees has got to be pegged in, and so there's a lot of things. And then, you know, how do they get in and out? And then the emergency services and gates and security and. So there's a lot of, lot yeah. of, you know, even even the catering and you know how do they get to to where they need to be and and how do they, you know, um, um, you know, get you know, water and services to where they need to go. So all those things are, are, are over and above. But you know, you, you've got to put it in perspective and and say, well, you know, the playing surface is really where the focus for me is. But you've got all these peripheral things uh, happening around you. So car parking and, you know, so there's a a lot of things to a tournament of this size that sort of um, do distract you from from Mm. what what we do normally should be focused on. Uh, Just listening to you talk about that, you must have chuckled in 2017, I'm going to say, when there were calls to move the US Women's Open from the Trump course in Bedminster and just play it somewhere else. Three months before the first tee shot was supposed to be hit, people couldn't understand that. That's really not feasible, is it? No, no, no. And this, and, and you know, you, you, once it's once it's been planned, then it's very hard to sort of make make a change because. And then as soon as you start building, there are literally just, years of there's years of work goes into preparing, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. of course for an event like this, absolutely. Yeah, indeed. Back to surfaces and playing surfaces and the expectations of players these days and, you know, all of those things and, and Metro and are we heading in a healthy direction? It feels to me like there's two strings being pulled in golf. We want to see perfect golf on television, but we want to have sustainable golf for the rest of us to enjoy. How do we balance those two things? Because, of course, Augusta National gets the blame for it, but I feel like most professional tournament courses probably share some of the blame conditions are always perfect and so when the golfer goes to consume a retail golf product golf course they have an expectation that what they see on tv is going to be matched by what they play mm. and i think you know golf course superintendents are to blame in in some respect as well because you know we're you know continually better educated we have better tools at our disposal uh and we're able to produce these pristine um, quite incredible surfaces. playing surface. If, if anyone's not been to Metro to play, it's quite. If the first time I went there, I was nervous about walking on the grass. So perfect is it as a surface? It's almost carpet-like, which is wonderful. Mm. But is it sustainable? I guess. Can we have both? Mm. So uh, it, it's it's a thing that uh, is often talked about with our industry, and certainly at our club, uh, we we talk about that. And you know, you think about. You know, 30 years ago at Royal Melbourne, and there was no um, fairway irrigation, um, so the fairways just went brown and they'd crackle under your feet when you when you walked down in the middle of summer. Um, greens were, you know, um, not 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 maintained to the to the level they are now, but also there was less play and the expectations were different. So, while superintendents have sort of and the industry has responded to to make uh, higher, higher level playing surfaces. Um, it's in and 
the bar keeps going up from the from the clubs and and, and players, it's hard to sort of turn that back and go back to to um, what it might have been, you know, thirty years ago. So uh, it's a real challenge, I think, to deal with. Um, but uh, does it use more resources to do that? To, to, to maintain a course in the condition like, let's say, Augusta National, that we see it for that tournament week, the resources required to do that. Mm. Common sense tells you it must. Is that true, though? I mean, you must see in your own magazines and publications, industry publications, all sorts of products and ideas and concepts to be able to get that result with less resources. Are we moving to an area where that's going to be sustainable or is there always going to be an issue with over-presentation of courses? Yeah, well, you know, you... you, you you compare the, the, the what happens in the US with with expectations, and you know you hear this all the time that the, the, the American club members go and, and do the the Lynx courses in in Scotland and Ireland, and come back and go, oh, it's fantastic, Brown. You know, we think it's hard and fast and running, but they won't, then they go back to their own club and they won't accept it at all. So. Rand Morissette describes it as the lobotomy on the plane. They, they go to Scotland and have a ball and, and on the way back on the plane they have a lobotomy and when they get back they start insisting on more water, more green, more golf carts, mm. more this and more that. It's funny, isn't it? But but also I think if, if you analyse that in the US, they're trying to grow turf in, in places where, you know, you've got high humidity and you've got, you know, very different, you know, the the climate of those Lynx courses is, is almost uh, ideal where it's, you know, it doesn't get overly hot it's not overly humid and the turf just is happy there you don't have to put all the plant protection products on it and sort of it's just you know simply it's just mowing the grass almost whereas the u.s models you know they're very you know difficult climates and you've snow and you've got desert humid you see them in phoenix they're an actual desert so that generates a lot of the the high input Mm-hmm. Uh, things, of course, the, the the standard and expectation that that you know tournament uh, courses produce uh, also increases that. Um, and if you you know if if resources aren't a um, restriction, then you just keep doing what you know to get that last ten percent. You know you you're putting in thirty percent, forty percent more, forty percent more inputs. That's right. So. Um, that's that's the difficult part, but you know I think we're we're all um, conscious of that. But uh, then you know the expectation from um, from from player from your members and, and players is is high. So until that expectation changes, we always have the conversation here. We've got pretty much common cooch grass fairways um, compared to you know, metropolitan we've been talking about that has a you know, much higher density cooch grass and it's probably um, a stronger surface here we, we can back off our, our fertilizer and water and, and, and um, inputs on fairways but we'll lose surface quality because it'll break open and I, I can produce brown fairways quite easily but we lose the surface quality, so um, you know people aren't prepared to accept that at this stage. But uh, by necessity, you know, water is is our biggest challenge. I think um, these are huge questions for the game, aren't they? Not for individuals at individual clubs, but for the game as a whole. These are enormous questions because the outside pressures on golf are growing. It is a 
big space user and a big resource user. Absolutely. And if those things don't change from within, they will be forced from without. Yes. No, you, you can see that happening now and, and you know, yeah. using um, potable or drinking water uh, to, to irrigate turf is probably those days a, a number. Well, even as a golfer, you can't possibly support that, can no. you? As a human, you can't say it's a good idea to take no. drinking water and pour it on a golf course so that it putts better or you have a better line in the fairway. No, There's right. just no common sense to it. But it's not. And if it's a scarce resource, then it's even more um, challenging. So, um, but, you know, what, what do we do? I mean, our groundwater... Um, reserves here are not as good as some other courses and so what are the alternatives you know we harvest storm water and we do all those things here um but uh you know that that's only good to a point if it's not raining you don't collect storm water so i think there's you know this potential you know we we dump all this recycled water out into into the to the ocean every day um you know we've got to tap into that resource more there's got to be a second pipe system somewhere that's you know brings that source of water back for irrigation of sporting grounds and mm-hmm. golf courses and racetracks and and, and all those uh, big natural sort of turf uh, areas i think we've got you know the government or we've got to invest in the infrastructure to do that because there's a resource sitting there it's just that it can't it just doesn't have the have the uh, infrastructure to bring it to the areas it needs to so i think that's got to happen um more more um in, in the future to to be sustainable on condition and expectations <clears throat> i wonder and you'd be perfectly placed to say this are our it's the wrong word but are our worst conditioned courses in this modern age as almost as well perhaps presented as good courses used to be 30 years ago. Does that make sense, the question I'm asking? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I suppose, you know, if you've, you're restricted by what you can do, um, you know, you're going to see more, more. you know, you've got, you've got less personnel and, and less equipment and, and less inputs. You, you, you're going to see more like the what, what, what we were used to, you know, 30, 30 years ago. Um just by by the fact that you can't put those inputs into it, but e- even those courses where they're you know limited in in staff and personnel, there's still you know the technologies have, have developed enough to still probably have better surfaces than perhaps they were 30 mm. years ago. Not not across the board, but no. gen- generally, um, you know, you might have better better quality mowers um, mm-hmm. and better quality grasses. Um, and knowledge, so potentially even those courses could be a, a higher level um, in, in some respects, mm. particularly greens. Mm, indeed. Mm. We're sitting in your office here, Richard, and there's a lot of paperwork and President's Cup logo things, and we've talked about the meetings and all that other stuff. Do you still get the time to spend with your boots on the grass, being able to touch the grass that you'd like to? Because, of course, the irony of your job is the more senior you get at it, and you've got probably one of the dream jobs in the world here, as we've already discussed, probably the less time you get to spend doing what it is that you really want to do. Yeah, that's right. But, I, you know, you, you, it does make your day longer, but, we, we, you know, just try to be, uh, when, you, when you need to be out, out in the field as much as you can and just try and get that balance right. And so um, when, when people come into my office and see the paperwork piled up that's because um you know still trying to get out uh, as much as i can in the field uh, so I, I i value that and i think it's important and that's that's what the jo- jo- job is a lot about observation and sort of and as we've said before just being able to see what what's going on on a daily basis so um 
you just need to be out there. So that's experience, isn't it? That's right. And and with a lot of staff and and you know soon to be a lot of contractors around, you, you just need to be out and about and, and and being in touch with that. And then at the end of the day, you can come back in and and, and do that administrative. Um, you can do paperwork stuff. at night, Richard. You can, of course, you can. <laughs> if you don't fall asleep. If you don't fall asleep, <laughs> and you don't have a family or anything else in your exactly. life that you'd like to exactly. do, you can do all of those things. What's your favourite? What's your favourite part about being the core super at Royal Melbourne? What's your favourite part of Royal Melbourne, this property? Is there a place that you sometimes – not to give away any secrets, I don't want the staff to be able to discover <laughs> you, but do you have a secret spot that you like? You mentioned seeing the place in the evening light sometimes. Mm. And are, there, are there particular spots that you're drawn to around the course sometimes to sit and have a think about where you've come from, where you are, what what the course means? Oh, I think you, you admire a lot of those – Places where, where probably the golfers admire as well. You know, you stand on the top of you. We walk down 17 West, and you sort of you come up over the rise, and, you, and then you look look into the green complex, and it sort of just opens in front of you. And I, I enjoy that uh, that vista coming up over the hill on Four West, and you know, then the, the then the green complex opens out, sweeping down the hill. Um, you stand on any of the par threes, really, and admire those. So there's, there's plenty of places at Royal Melbourne where you can go and say that's that's pretty pretty special uh, place. And so for for me, you know, when, when you start out um, in the job, you know, you you get your satisfaction from mowing that green and looking back at it and going, gee, that's I've done a good job there. That looks great. But now it's more about the overall. So, so the satisfaction comes from seeing your staff produce that um th- those results out there so you know you look at the overall big picture and that's where you, you really get your satisfaction from and and seeing i think in, in a, from a people point of view seeing staff develop and, and you know we over the years there's so many apprentices have come in just as i did and then sort of gone out and, and sort of running their own courses and things you get a lot of satisfaction out of seeing young people develop that same passion and enthusiasm uh, for the job and, and then being successful at it and getting to uh, to run their own um, course and things. So you, you get your job satisfaction from different different mm-hmm. angles to, to what it was when you first started out and, gee, I did a good job cutting that yeah. green or, you know, that, that feels good if I raked that bunker well. So it's a, a big, bigger picture sort of um, feeling, I suppose. It's a brotherhood, isn't it, the, the turf industry, I feel like? Golf probably tight amongst itself but the turf industry in general mm. is quite a brotherhood isn't it a lot, a lot of people don't understand it's a bit, it's a bit weird I suppose people that, that uh, get their enjoyment from watching grass grow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a certain pace to it isn't it yeah, that's right. you but, can uh, keep up it's not uh, there's a bit of witchcraft about it yeah. too I think so there's uh, yeah there's a, yeah. you know you talk to someone else in the in the business and, and, and they understand what you're talking about but um, you know outside that not everyone gets it. You know the the sense of um, commitment and dedication that um, not just me, but all no, the staff have to put in Any to, golf to get the results. No, yeah. you, you've got bigger resources and everything at your fingertips mm. here, but you're trying to achieve the same things as the single core superintendent facility out in the country. You're mm, doing right. whatever you can with what you've got to make it happen. I was just thinking while you were talking there, the temptation in your job, I guess, with so much machinery around and everything moving quite quickly is to constantly be in a cart or some sort of a vehicle to get from one place to the next. Do you get much opportunity just to walk on the course? And is there some value in that? Uh, there's definitely value in it, uh, but you're usually trying to cover the ground um, to to to. S- 
get from A to B quickly. So it just ten, tends to be in a vehicle um, most of the time. But uh, as I said before, I try to walk around for, you know, 45 minutes mm-hmm. an hour at, at night. Um, that That's the time to sort of really slow down and sort of just feel it under your feet close look at things um and and sort of think about what's got to happen for the next day so yes during the day probably don't do certainly walk on as many greens as i can during the day but um you know we're relying on our our senior people to to do that as well um but yeah there's there's a lot to be said for walking the golf course and 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 feeling closer to it for sure just the paths you take, don't they? Change the perspective. And not something I hadn't thought about much, but Derek Duncan mentioned in one of his podcasts, Feed the Ball, that when you walk a golf course and play golf, you always enter the green from the front. Mm. When you ride a cart, you almost never enter a green from the front. Yes. And you, there's a perspective that you completely miss for 18 straight holes, mm. generally speaking, of mm. just walking up the green from the front. It's mm. a tiny detail, mm. but there's, there's mm. something in that, isn't there? Mm. Last couple of questions. President's Cup coming up, of course. We know about all the pressures and all the work and all everything that's going to go into it. For those perhaps coming to spectate at the President's Cup, can you give us any insights into good places to spectate from or things to look out for on the course? What will you be particularly interested to see if you get any time at all to get out of this office and onto the course when some of the world's best are out there? Yes, I've been asked this a little bit, but but I think, you know... um I've got to think about the whole numbering now. We've got so many oh, the composite course. Of course. So, um, but well, five and six west, which will play as um, three and four for the Presidents Cup. You know, there's always drama on those, and because the greens have a high percentage slope um, about them, and so the ball can actually, if you don't get it right, it can roll back to your feet and that sort of thing. So there's always drama there. So. That sort of uh, amphithe- amphitheatre sort of effect around those greens, and you can sit up on that bank and sort of watch watch it all happen. I think that's pretty good viewing, and I think also the short the shorter par fours where you know players will take a different approach, where they'll you know they'll have a go at the green or they'll they'll, they'll lay up, and, and so you see a lot of variety and different and in match play scenario it's it can be quite interesting to see how that how they tackle that as well so i would say the short par fours and those two what, what will play as three and four that, that corner there is i think they're they're the they're the key go-to spots yeah. but uh, was it Stuart manley that went 110 that's right on five and six and yeah. that's that encapsulates perfectly what can happen in that corner isn't it he thought he'd won the car yeah and then they <laughs> tapped right. him on the shoulder and said he hadn't and then he it, it just have it Never has a hole in one been such a drag on a player's round. It couldn't have gone more wrong after uh, for him. What you've outlined there is really the essence of interesting golf, isn't it? Where there are, and there, uh, you think of 10 west, I'm not sure what number it'll be in the composite. Uh, what was the first last time? Three west, I think. Shortish, sort of. I remember watching Adam Scott have a first go at that. West, yeah. That. That decision making, when, mm. when you see good players who have to not just execute but think. Mm. Add in the match play and the game is that by far at its most intriguing, isn't it? I think yeah, I agree. Yeah. So and, and that's that's what you want to see is, is how how the different strategies and, and where they are in the match at what stage mm-hmm. the match is at. That's right. Do they, do they need to driver one day might be right. four eye in the next because yes, it's correct. just the sensible thing so, to do. Yeah, and I think you know as you said before, you know, rural Melbourne is a great place to see that sort of interaction between the course and the strategy and, and, and the match play scenario. So, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's shaping to be a great event. I think it's, uh, you know, if you, uh, 
if you really uh, appreciate golf, it's it's a great tournament to come and have a look at. Well, you must have the inside oil. Richard, is Tiger going to play or is Tiger not going to play? You better tell us, I think. <laughs> if, you knew, if you knew that. So it seems to be uh, there's, there's two questions uh, that are being asked by everyone and the other one is, uh, is the president coming? So, uh, uh, of course, yeah, well, that's right. Two big so, personalities there. And we don't... Uh, we don't know the answer to, to either. Do you get to meet all of them? Have you met Ernie? Have you spoken to Tiger previously or the players? Do you get much of a chance to meet them? Do they come and give you much feedback and offer feedback, either positive or negative, having left one at their feet or having old one that they particularly enjoyed? Well, last year, p- part of the promotion of the event is that the two captains come to make a visit 12 months before the event. So I had the... Uh the privilege to, to travel around with both Ernie and uh, oh, Tiger for two or three hours um, in a golf cart uh, Wow! last December. Um, you can't buy that. And if you can, no. Richard, you can't afford it. No, exactly. <laughs> Trust me. Exactly. So that was a great experience. And, and Ernie, as as the, the home team captain, has when, when he agreed to be captain, uh, he, he asked that he have some input into how the course uh, mm-hmm. is, plays. and how, So he was very... Uh, very interested in how how we were how would we set the golf course up and he wanted to know you know the ins and outs of that so he he was quite engaged with that and and tiger was um uh, he did say to he arrived here at the maintenance facility oh really his entourage how big is uh, the entourage just on it by the way it's not small is it 30ish people so and, but what he said. Did you know he was coming, or yes. did you just look out the window and there no, were thirty no, people? There? No, oh, I, I didn't know there was going to be thirty people, but I ma- only imagined we had you know managers, yeah, yeah, security, of media. Yeah. But he said to me in the golf cart as we drove away from here, he said, uh, "You know, this is this is." I asked him about the entourage, and he said, "Just goes with the territory." But I'd much rather just come and, and drive around with you and talk about the golf course. And so, so you sort of. You understand a bit of his life. He doesn't. He just can't go out anywhere on his own and sort of. Um, uh, and Not many humans live in the fishbowl. A lot of no. people talk about. It. He is one who he can't go out and buy milk. No. Imagine being Tiger Woods mm. and you can't go out and buy. You can do anything else in it, but you can't go out and buy milk. You can't go to the movies. You can't. It's just not. That's an incredible thing to consider. And, and he was an absolute professional when he was here that day and he, and he was tired he spent the whole day doing promotional things mm-hmm. for for the event but uh, as soon as there was a microphone or a camera in front of him, he just he lit up and he just yeah. was engaged and between shots he was yeah. he was stretching and he was you know he, he was he's a genuine golf lover isn't he and i know he's he's pointed more than once to royal melbourne and the sand belt as a huge influence in his own course design mm. which he's done a couple which look very interesting you get the sense that he's not paying lip service there that he 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 enjoys being I'm, i plan to ask him when he gets here in the press conference this course and its role in the game more broadly and the effects and impacts of what's happening around the game on places like this because it's important isn't it and i get the sense that he genuinely feels about that stuff well you know he has a design company these days as well and so he's he sent people from his design company here oh really specifically to study the the the, how how it's laid out so because he he does refer to not just royal melbourne but the sand sand belt that's right um courses to having some influence over over Mm. what he's his philosophies and things um from a company point of view in design so yeah i think he is does understand it and appreciate it and 
um, he, he likes the firmness factor and perhaps from what we were saying before is that the pure shot um, and the person who understands the angles is rewarded. So He gets to stand out when those are the conditions. That's right. So, so I think that's one of the things he really likes about, about uh, what, what happens here in Melbourne with, yeah. with, with the firmness. Yeah. He's winning, I'm well off on a tangent here, but he's winning at Kingston Heath in 2009 felt to me like you saw some of the shots he hit, even when he hit it out of position, some of the recovery mm. play. Like the prodigy virtuoso finding the world's best violin, mm. when the two got put together, it was magical mm. to see. And these are the sorts of courses I feel. Mm. He, Seve, Greg Norman, mm. the players of that genuine extra gear special ability, when you get to see them play a course like this in its correct dimensions, that's mm. when something special happens. It's magical, isn't it? Mm. And they feel it too, I suspect. Well, you know, even from the, the, the Women's um, Australian Open, I, I, I took a lot out of, um, you know, the women really didn't adjust to, to the firmness that, that uh, just happens here naturally. Not, we Not weren't trying deliberate, to no. make concrete green to see them uh, embarrassed or anything, but it's just the way it was. The conditions, the weather and everything firmed them up. But Lydia Coe, who I think was a, maybe a 17-year-old at the time, so she was young anyway. And someone asked her about the conditions and, and, and playing Royal Melbourne, and she said, no, I get it. You just you got to let the ball release and run up and you take a club less and, and that's that's how the course plays. And so whereas some of the the more more experienced players were saying, oh, this doesn't reward good shots and, and so on. So a 17-year-old girl got to... Un, un, she just understood what she had to do and her, her comments after when, when someone was probing her to say... Oh, you know, it's too difficult. Yeah, that's right. She actually came out with that, and I thought it was fantastic yeah. to hear her say that. And so I followed her that final round of Sunday with Mike Clayton, mm-hmm. which was a personal joy for me. But mm. what a clinic mm. in a player in complete control of her game and understanding exactly what was required. It was remarkable mm. to watch. While those around her, the frustration was obvious from, mm. from the other side of fairways for, mm. for a lot of the players who just don't get to play that mm. style of golf. They're all capable of learning it. But it's a, they find it confronting when they've never played it and they, they suddenly encounter it and the ball doesn't do what they expect it to do immediately. Well, and we have these conversations with the, 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 the course set-up people because, um, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, it's too hard, you know, you, the green's got too hard, we, can't, we need to water it, um, you know, players don't handle it. And I think, well, how don't they handle it? How can't they adjust to... Just hitting the front of the green or running it up or, you know. There's plenty of room to run it up here, isn't there? They, they can do that flight to the pin every day of the week. But if they come to a golf course, when that's that's part of the – that's the way it is. We're not doing anything um, out of the ordinary. It's just the way it is. You know, our sand type, our, our climate. The members here will often tell you they've got it too easy, won't they, when the tournaments are well, on. Right. <laughs> the course so, plays more difficult week so to we, week. So we have that fight all the time. You know, prepare the course for the – for the players, I'm saying let's prepare the course the way it always is, and let the players adjust. The smartest one's going to figure it out. So, I, I yeah, I just think we 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 trying to you know, standardise or you know make, make it uniform across the board. I think the beauty of coming here is seeing something a bit different and, and play, see see the players that adjust to it well and the ones that. 
don't necessarily. The role of the golf course in the game feels to me like it's changing. It's probably less respect for it in the modern era. And I don't just mean professionally. But I don't think golfers generally give as much thought to the golf course and its role in your enjoyment and playing of the game as perhaps they should. We certainly know professional golf try to prepare the same golf course each week just in a different state. Mm. We see that every week mm. on the professional tours and that's part of the reason the players are so good. You dial in a six iron goes this far, you get that yardage, you hit it next to the flag. But the game will be diminished, will it not, if the role of the course isn't protected and understood. Mm. Because the arm wrestle is between the player and the course, is not the player and the rest of the players. Mm. That's the true beauty of golf, it feels to me. Mm. And then, you know, you see it in tournament golf because you know, the PGA Tour will put out a, a book to the host club. This is, you know, we want the rough to be this high, this far from the fairway, and we want sand depth to be this in the bunkers and the greens to run at, you know, 11 and a half feet. Or, you know, I think that's, you know, that's a bit monotonous. Uh, it's much better to see, you know, different... And, and that's why... You know, we we all when we tune in to, to see the see the open played on the on the links courses and there's some firmness and fire and bounce and there's a whole wow people go oh this is a whole different game and there's some some interest in in it um, it's just completely different and so that um, that firmness and bounce and ground game uh, is really important we just don't see it very often um, and you watch the PGA Tour all the time and it's not necessarily a um, and it's not necessarily it's a strategy. It's sometimes it's just the way you know where they're playing. Mm, sure, some conditions only allow you to prepare a course. That's right. You can't you can't make firm greens in a you know humid sort of um, inland sort of mm. treed scenario. So, um, but it's just great. You know, you're, everyone, you can, the mood of golf watchers almost goes up when you see that sort of bouncy yeah. sort of um, scenario because it's a whole different element. Uh, Brings in the train wreck. And the brilliance, doesn't it? And that's what you want to see in golf. Cruelly, we want to see the train wreck because we identify, and then we want to see the brilliance, which stuns us and makes us go, wow. You know, we, we say here a lot of time, you know, um, a hole like Seven West, um, the, the short par three there, that, that, you know, the members understand how to play that better than, the, than you know, we, we have, we've, last few years we've hosted the Australian Master of the Amateurs event, which a lot of the good international um, pros in waiting let's not call them amateurs let's yes, be right. let's be serious but but you know they, they stand on the tee and they go oh it's it's 132 yards to the pin and that's where where they're aiming to hit it but if you land it next to the pin it won't be next to the pin when they get up there it'll be in the back bunker or through the back whereas the the members play that sort of low <laughs> right yeah. running shot and use the contours and and you know it's the hole is almost easier for them than, than mm. the guy who's trying to fly it and land it on the green and expecting it to stop next to the pin. So There's some um, diabolical places to miss around here. I always feel like when professional golf comes here, we see more big numbers, mm. probably less bogeys, but more doubles and triples mm. because there are spots where y- you can't make bogey from there. Double is a good result, and that's not true of most courses and most of those players. They are so good. Mm. But Royal Melbourne retains areas. You, you hit it over the back of six west. Mm. Mm. Or the back bunker, yeah. You, you, you'd take six every day yeah. when you yeah. move to the next tee, yeah, yeah, yeah. no matter how good you are. So. Yeah, and, that, and that, that's, that's a great part of the, the course. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. Mm. Richard, it's been fantastic to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Best of luck with the President's Cup. Uh, we'll be down here, and I'm sure the world will be watching, and I'm sure that what they're going to see is a fantastic golf course with fantastic players. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you, Rod. I enjoyed it. Thank you.
Well, I think you'll agree with me that Richard's made his way into the top 10 of the nicest people in the game after that chat. And I've got to say, he also earns a spot in the top 10 coolest heads under the most pressure. Can you imagine the logistics of an event like the President's Cup and the pressure to present a course in perfect condition for the world to see? Richard's to be congratulated and admired for his contribution to what will no doubt be a terrific event. I hope you enjoyed that talk with Richard, and if you did, then stick around for next month's episode when we'll catch up with one of Australia's most successful and revered players, 23 times a winner on the PGA Tour of Australasia, including sweeping the big three tournaments after his 50th birthday. The legend that is Peter Senior. Thank you.